0: Paul's letter to the Galatians will be in chapter 3 this evening, church, and we'll be looking at verses 19 to 25. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 25, and the title of my sermon this evening, church, is True Freedom in the Son. True Freedom in the Son. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 25, and once you find your place in your Bible's loved ones, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this evening. True Freedom in the Son, Galatians 3, 19-25. This is the word of the Lord, church, here tonight, starting in Galatians 3, verse 19. Paul the Apostle writes, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Oh, sorry, wrong place. Why then the law? That's the first question, I got ahead of myself. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the word of God, church. Let's go before him in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for the grace, the gift to gather in your name Um, for another day, for another time this day on this Lord's day. We thank you, Lord, God, just to be able to sing songs of praise to you, Lord, to hear the word preached, and God, to take the Lord's Supper at the end of tonight, Lord. We're thankful for the freedoms that we have, Lord, as Christians, that, Lord, we can do this, Lord, each and every single week, Lord, without worrying about um, being persecuted for our faith, at least yet, Lord. But this day, Lord, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that, God, we have salvation in your Son, Jesus, that although we were all sinners, Lord, born in sin, conceived in sin, and doing whatever seemed right in our own eyes, that God, out of your great love for your people, um, that you sent your son Jesus to, to, to come into this world, to add humanity to himself, to live a perfect life, and to die on the cross for our sins so that we would be a people set apart for your glory and redeemed back to you so that, Lord, in all that we do while we're here on this earth, that we just bring glory to your name. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. So, Lord, I just pray for my church family. Help them to be expository listeners, to listen to what your word has to tell them today. We pray for any unbelievers here, Lord, who do, who do not know you, Lord. We're thankful that they're here and that, God, they just, that their conscience will be pricked um, with the gospel by the Spirit so that they may repent and, and turn to faith in you, King Jesus. And, and, and lastly, for myself, God. Um, I am a weak vessel. Um, Physically, I feel weak right now, but Lord, I pray that you will carry me, Lord. That, Lord, you will just help me to preach your word to your people, that I will not mess it up in any way. That you'll guide my words, that you guide my thoughts, so that, Lord, it is your word going to your people, and that, Lord, your people are sanctified this day more into the image of your son Jesus, and ultimately, Lord, will go out through these doors as they tackle their weeks this next week to make disciples of all the nations, to glorify you with all that they are, with all that you have called them to be, Lord, um, until the day you return to make all things new, King Jesus. But, Lord, Lord, we thank you for this day, and we just lift up all these things in Jesus' name. We pray, Amen. Maybe see the church at the end of the 2004 movie *I, Robot*. A robot named Sonny has fulfilled the design of his program, yet he now realizes that he has no more purpose in life, and so the movie concludes with a dialogue, a conversation between Sonny and the other main character, Detective Spooner. Sonny says. Now that I have fulfilled my purpose, I don't know what to do. Detective Spooner responds Well, I guess you have to find your way like the rest of us, Sonny. That's what it means to be free. And what's interesting is that this view of freedom does not embrace a grand purpose for which humanity is created to follow. Instead, true freedom is defined by an individual creating their own meaning and purpose. That's what the movie shows. Likewise, modern American culture embraces this idea of freedom because many Americans believe that true freedom is not found in conforming to any external institution or authority. Rather, it can only be determined within an individual themselves. Only the individual can create their own meaning and purpose because only then can they experience true freedom leading to happiness. That's what people think in our culture. And yet, is that what it really means to be free? And when you consider this question, especially through the Bible, you not only gain clarity on what true freedom is, but how you can even experience it today. Therefore, the Apostle Paul gives an answer regarding this question tonight here in Galatians 3, 19 to 25. The main point of the passage is that you can only find freedom in Jesus by faith. You can only find freedom in Jesus by faith. But why? Because tonight's message goes against the grain of our culture's assumption about freedom. Because many people in our culture will say, that's too limiting, John. That's too narrow. It's too exclusive. And yet, Paul the Apostle presents three features. Three features of God's law that show why you can only find freedom in Jesus by faith. The first feature is the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law, as we'll see in verses 19 to 20. The second feature is the promise and the law. The promise and the law, as we'll see in verses 21 to 22. And the final feature is the pedagogue as the law. The pedagogue as the law in verses 23 to 25. And yes, I'm going to define pedagogue at the end of tonight. But at least by tonight, however, you're all going to understand why you can find true freedom in the Son in the Son of God, Jesus, by faith alone. And so let's turn to the first feature of the law in tonight's text, which again is this, the purpose of the law. That's the first feature, the purpose of the law. So look at Galatians 3.19 in your Bibles. Paul writes these words. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And so Paul begins tonight with the question, why then the law? And yet he raises it because it's it's a natural objection from those he is writing to in Galatia. And to kind of briefly recap what's been going on here in Galatians, Paul writes this letter because he had a group of people called Judaizers. They came into these churches and they were bringing with them a false gospel, fake news. And what they were teaching is that a person needs to be Jewish to be saved. That's the heart of their message. And to be Jewish, a person must do good works of the law, such as the guys getting circumcised and everyone else keeping the Old Testament feasts. And as a result, the Galatians, they were deceived by this false teaching. And as a result, Paul writes this letter to correct them that no one, whether you are a Jew or whether you're a non-Jew, no one is saved by their good works alone. Because even if you're gonna try, right, then you must be perfect because the standard is the creator God in heaven is perfect. He is the absolute standard of morality. But everyone knows that no one is perfect. We, everyone knows that in our heart of hearts we sin. Everyone does wrong. Everyone falls short. Everyone knows that they ought to behave in a certain way, but we fail to do so daily. And as a result, the consequence of sin is the curse of God's law, eternal judgment in hell. And this leads Paul to show then that there's only one way. There's only one way to find freedom from the curse of God's law, and that's that's to find freedom from the curse of sin's bondage. It's by finding freedom in the God-man, by faith. And that God-man is Jesus, the Messiah. Since he died on the cross in the place of all who would believe in him, you can only find eternal life in him. That is what Paul has been basically arguing here, especially in the context of Galatians chapter 3 so far. Therefore, this first objection that Paul addresses in Galatians 3.19, is a legitimate one. Because the Galatians, hearing Paul's argument, they're falling, they're tracking. All right, Paul, if a person is saved not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ alone, then what good is the law? What is really the purpose of the law? And in response, Paul gives an answer. Look at how he answers in verse 19 again. He writes this, that it was added The law was added because of transgressions. And so the purpose of God's law, at least what Paul is saying here, is because of transgressions. But that then begs the question, what does Paul mean by transgressions here? Well, transgression is an act of, bless you, deviating from an established boundary or norm. In other words, it just really refers to the idea of stepping over a line. Stepping over the boundary or standard, and in this case, stepping over the line of God's law as a lawbreaker. And furthermore, how this phrase is constructed in the Greek, it actually indicates that the function here is something that deals with the mind, something that deals with the cognitive mind of the person. It's bringing awareness of one's transgression against God. And so, the purpose then of the law here is to convince humanity of sin. That's the purpose. And to kind of help un- un- illustrate this, think about with me a spotlight, right? Not the spotlight that you, that you have like on theaters and stages and stuff like that. Think about a spotlight on a helicopter at night. And so when a helicopter is using a spotlight, especially like a city like Victorville, for example, they're usually trying to find criminals to imprison them because they've probably done a crime and stuff like that. At least that's in our context, right? Likewise, God's law, it's like that spotlight. It's a spotlight condemning humanity as guilty transgressors against him because all of humanity has broken god's law by doing whatever seems right in their own hearts and so humanity then is guilty of cosmic treason against the king of the universe and it's the law of god here that condemns them because of it and and furthermore then when we when we talk about god's law then the only reason why it's able to do this because it gives us an objective standard it is the objective standard of telling us what is evil exactly because, it is, because it's coming from God. God is the perfect standard of goodness. He himself is holiness. And since he's the one that gave the law, it gives us an idea of what is absolutely wrong and what is absolutely right. Whatever goes against God's commands is what's absolutely wrong because it goes against God. And whatever is absolutely right is what correlates to God's perfect nature. And so when humans transgress, then, that perfect standard, they sin ultimately against God. And since sin is lawlessness, the only just punishment is cosmic judgment, the eternal lake fires of hell. That's what Paul says here is the law's purpose. But yet there's something that we need to keep in mind here, though, because Paul's discussion of the law here is obviously not exhaustive. And the reason why that's the case, because Paul is just merely responding to the situation here at Galatia. Because if, you, because if you keep in mind the context of Galatians chapter 3, Paul has one idea in mind that you're not saved by works of the law. Instead, you're saved by your faith in Christ alone. And so, to kind of help illustrate that, he brings up the purpose that how can you be saved by the law if the whole point of the law is that you are a sinner? You are a sinner against God. And so since the purpose of the law, God's law, is to reveal humanity's sinfulness, no one is then able to keep God's law perfectly. And since one has to perfectly keep the law to be saved, no one is saved by the law. That's what Paul has been arguing here in Galatians 3. And to kind of help support this, consider what Paul says in Romans 3.20. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. In other words, no human being will be declared right before God in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the first purpose Paul has in mind here about God's law. Moreover, although he does focus on one, I'm willing to say that that's not the only one that, that, we, that we read in the scriptures. And it's at this point that I think that French theologian, I think John Calvin was correct in saying that there is not just one usage of the law, the one that Paul highlights here Instead, when you read the scriptures, there's actually three usages of the law. And this is just helpful just to keep in mind to understand the full purpose of God's law. What are those three usages? Well, first, as I mentioned earlier, is to convince humanity of sin. Again, just think of that spotlight looking for criminals, how the law of God condemns us in our sin. That's the first use of the law. But the second usage of the law is to moderate sin. And to give an illustration for this is that think of a stoplight in traffic, right? Imagine you're driving a car. Imagine all the different the, the, the signs, the, the the light posts and stuff like that. Imagine if none of that was there. Imagine how crazy, how dangerous if you didn't have those speed, those speed limit signs and those lights, in a sense, moderating how does one drive traffic. Granted, I know so-called traffic is still pretty bad with those laws in place, but still imagine if those laws weren't there in the first place. And it's to kind of give a Somewhat of an encouragement reminder that I remember I had a good Indian buddy, um, he's no longer with us, he passed, but I remember he told me once that you have an 80% chance of getting in a car accident if you're driving a car in India. Thankfully, he never got in a car accident, right? But it just kind of shows that when those laws are not in place, then you have devastation, destruction. But when, you have, but when you do have those laws, all those stuff could still happen, especially in a fallen world, it, it is still there to moderate um, bad things from happening, that's another purpose of God's law, to moderate sin um, t- so that cultures don't get out of the control, right? And just think of the Ten Commandments when we think about this. But third, though, to get to the final usage of the law, this is something that's exclusive to the Christian. And this is why we can still call the law good. Because what the law's purpose for the Christian now, under the New Covenant, is to encourage you, loved ones, of how to obey God. And to give another illustration for this, think of a headlight on a car. Imagine you're driving your car by night and your headlights turn off and it's dark. It's going to be very easy then to maybe hit a couple posts, get off the road. It's going to be bad news, right? And yet, what does Psalm 119.105 say? It says that your word, O Lord, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word, now that you have been regenerated by the Spirit, now that you're a Christian, God's law actually tells you how to obey God. How to live, God? Now that you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, it's the law of God that tells you this is how you ought to live—to love God ultimately, to love your neighbor as you go about all the days of your life. These are the uses of the law, and although Paul focuses on one, when we when we think about God's purposes, these are the three that we at least want to keep in mind. Therefore, God's law is good, is it not? Because it reflects the perfect nature of who God is, and as a result. The Bible gives us an objective standard for morality, and I say that because that is good news. That should be comforting, especially because we live in a, in a wicked world. We live in a world that is filled with great moral acts of human evil, especially what's going on in the news, right? Because without an objective standard of truth, it is impossible, really, to know what is right and wrong, because everyone knows that there's such a thing as what is right and what is wrong, but... Without that transcendent standard defining what it is, that standard being God, then there is really no hope for justice. Because what is justice? What is wrong? What is right? And, and And if we can't define that, then there's no peace. You cannot have peace that evil one day will be absolutely judged. And yet, when Paul says that God's law, that is his word, reveals humanity's sinfulness, it demonstrates that, no, there is a standard for what is absolutely right and what is absolutely wrong. Everything that rebels against God's word, his law, is evil. And everything that walks in accordance to God's word, God's law, is good. Because at the end of the day, the law reveals the goodness of God in his nature. But when we talk about humanity and its nature, humanity is not good, right? Right? Humanity is evil, and the Bible promises that God in his goodness, he will one day judge all moral evil once and for all. That's why God's law, especially at being good, is so comforting. Just consider what Genesis 18.25 says about God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Of course, it's a rhetorical question, because God, since he is goodness, he is for justice, and at the end of time, he will do what is right to judge evil. Once and for all. And this leads to another promise that God will one day return, not to judge moral evil, but evil once and for all, right? The the, the evil that we see in, in, in nature with all the different earthquakes and the fires and stuff like that. God's gonna return and not only put an end to that, right? But because he is good, he's gonna come and restore this broken world anew in him. And just to give it another encouraging reminder of this promise, consider what the ending of the Bible says of this of the grand story of, of God's story in history. Revelation 21, 3, 5 records that, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And God says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the promises that God promises in Scripture. And that's what God's law, God's word tells us, loved ones. And yet, when we, hear, when we read of these promises, especially a day that, you're, that there's a day that you could be with God at the end of time forever, to, to be with the one who made you forever in the new heavens and the new earth, this earth restored without more evil, how does one receive such a glorious inheritance? How does one receive such a beautiful gift? And this is why Paul then says that the law was added. That's why he says it was added in Galatians 3.19. And what does he mean by added here? He, well, it was added after God's promise, the promises that he made to a man named Abraham. And if you don't know who Abraham is, he's just the father of the Israelite people. And the heart of all the promises that God made to Abraham is that God would redeem a people from all the nations back to himself through the Messiah and the Messiah would come through, fam, through Abraham's family line, the, the seed promise, which is ultimately fulfilled in, in the person and work of Jesus. And in response, how does Abraham respond to this? He believes in God's promises. He takes him at his word by faith alone, and God at that point declares him right before him. And so you can only be restored back to God, who created you for himself, by believing in this promise, the promise of a coming Messiah in the person and work of King Jesus. That's what it means to be truly saved, to have an eternal relationship with the greatest being imaginable, and that person is God. And yet, look at the next part of verse 19 here, regarding the law's purpose. Paul introduces an an, an interesting detail here that's important to keep in mind. Paul writes that until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And look at that word until really quick. It, it, It indicates even further the purpose of the law which again, as Paul describes it here, the the purpose that Paul is is focusing on is that the purpose of the law is to reveal sin. Until, however, and and that's a timing marker, the purpose of the law was to reveal sin until the offspring of promise would come. And that offspring is part of the promise that God gave to Abraham, and that promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And yet, even by us reading that, though, don't, don't think that the law stops revealing sin today once Christ came, no, because how would we know what is right and wrong? How, how would you and I know what sin truly is if, if the law, once Christ come, stopped functioning this way? No, the law still tells us, the word of God still tells us what is sinful, what is wrong, because that's what God's word tells us tells what it is. But the point of what Paul was trying to get at is that the law never functioned in a salvific sense. You can never be saved by your works of the law because primarily its purpose was to show you how much of a sinner you are, how much of a dirtbag you are. Only God's promise of his Messiah can do that. And so that was the main purpose of the law until Christ came, the Christ event, and then boom, that is what it tells you of how you got to be saved. And to kind of add upon that, look at that clause in verse 19 when Paul writes, the promise had been made. The promise had been made in the Greek. It indicates that God's promise to Abraham, it's still in effect. It's still going, not only in Paul's day, but even our day today, loved ones. When God makes a promise, he never breaks it. He will keep it to the very end. And this is going to be a point that Paul focuses on in the second feature of God's law and tells I don't want to get ahead of myself. Paul gives a brief comment on the nature of the law and the promise. And so look at how he finishes verse 19 here. Paul writes about the law, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. That's the manner of how Paul is describing the law came came into being. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And so what Paul is describing here, he's he's giving some descriptions how the law was actually put into place. And this may seem irrelevant at first, but Paul is just adding these details to make his point. And so so with this part in verse 19, when God gave his law to Israel, because that was the nation that originally received God's law, there's two elements that we need to keep in mind here. There's two elements, at least in this passage, that Jews traditionally believed when God gave the law to Israel. First, and this might sound strange, but I'll explain, it was put in place by God, because it came from God, through angels, through his good heavenly messengers. And the Bible is a little bit ambiguous about how angels helped to deliver God's law. Nonetheless, it still indicates that they were present. And just to give a couple examples from Scripture, there's only three verses that really talk about this. Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 says this. This is what Moses writes. He says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran and came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And if you were to look at that verse more closely, that ten thousands of holy ones, that's referring to angels. But the complexity of this passage is, doesn't mean that, that God, when, God, when it says 10,000 angels, doesn't mean that when God came from heaven to Mount Sinai to give the law, that the angels were in heaven. Or, as other translations put it, when God came to Mount Sinai, were the angels with them. It's very ambiguous there in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. But thankfully, we have a couple other verses in the New Testament to help clarify this. If you're to look at Acts seven five three, 3, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, this is what he says to a crowd of Jews. He says to them, you who received the law as delivered by angels, you did not keep it. And so what's interesting then is that not only does Stephen, you know, bring up angels, but he says that the law you received, the Jews, it was delivered by angels. So at least by Stephen's understanding and and in the Jewish mindset of that day, in some sense, the law was delivered by angels. And to kind of help understand that passage, consider what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2 records. It says that the message referring to the law, declared by angels, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And so when you kind of keep these verses together in mind, these angels were present when God gave his law to Israel while on Mount Sinai. So keep that detail in the back of your mind. I'm going to return to that very shortly. But that's the first thing that Jews kept in mind um, when God gave his law to Israel. The second detail, however, is that idea of an intermediary. Who was this intermediary or mediator that Paul has in mind? And the Jews, there's no other person that would have functioned as his mediator, than a guy named Moses. Moses, that person that God used to bring Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, through the forty years in the, in the wilderness. That's the Moses that we have in mind here. And to know for sure that Moses is functioning as his uh, as his mediary, um, or as his mediator, um, consider what he says himself in Deuteronomy five verse five. He says, "I stood between the Lord and you, Israel, at that time, to declare to you, Israel, the word of the Lord." for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. So kind of keeping all of this in mind, right? When God gave the law to Israel, at least what we can know for sure based on this passage and a little help from the Bible, is that angels helped in the process in some way while God functioned as a mediary. But that then begs the question, right? Why does Paul even mention this in the first place? Well, He offers an explanation in the next verse. And so look at what he says in Galatians 3.20 in your Bibles. Paul writes this, that now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And if you feel like John, that provided no clarity, then I'm glad you feel that way because I don't feel like it does either. Because when people come across this passage, most people consider this to be one of the most obscure passages in all of Paul's letters, one commentator has even said that there have been up to about 300 different interpretations on this passage alone. And I can tell you, loved ones, that when I was studying this text this week, I was getting frustrated. I was getting frustrated to the point saying that, Paul, just spit it out, man. Why couldn't it be more clear? And yet, I was, as I was frustrated with Paul here, I was comforted based on what the Apostle Peter once said. About Paul's letters. And this is comforting for us. That if, we feel, if you feel like, man, some of Paul's sayings are just so difficult. Consider what Peter the Apostle said in 2 Peter 3.16. He says, there are some things in them, and he's referring to Paul's letters, that are just hard to understand. That's what the Apostle Peter said. And I wonder if he had Galatians 3.20 in mind. Or he's like, hey, John, the interpretation is super easy. You're just missing it, man. I hope not, but that's one thing I do want to ask Paul. Like, Paul, what did you mean, man, in this passage? Couldn't you just be been more clear? And Paul's like, I was, you know, but we'll see, when, we'll see when we get there in heaven. But nonetheless, this passage here, there is great ambiguity and there is great difficulty surrounding this text. Yet, I believe the context of Galatians 3 is the key to correctly interpreting this passage. And I'm not, and, and, and I got to walk in humility here. I'm not saying that my interpretation right now is the One Ring to rule them all, right? Because as that one guy said, there's been up to 300 interpretations, regarding this one verse. But I think what I'm about to say best aligns with the context, as we should keep in mind as we interpret Scripture, and also it's 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 in line with a lot of the popular interpretations of many of the famous commentators today. So, what does this passage mean then, and why is it so significant? Well, look at the word intermediary or mediator in your Bibles. A mediator is simply a person who stands between two parties. A mediator is someone who stands between two parties. And this is significant because Paul throughout Galatians chapter 3 has been been comparing really two covenants. Covenants that is an agreement between two parties. The first first covenant that he's been focusing on is something known as the Abrahamic covenant. That's the first one. And the second one that Paul has been alluding to is the idea of the Mosaic covenant. So those are the two covenants that Paul Paul is is, um, utilizing here throughout Galatians 3. The Mosaic Covenant, for those who do not know what it is, the Mosaic Covenant is basically where God gave his law to Israel. That's what the Mosaic Covenant is is basically about, and there's some extra stuff that goes there. But when it comes to the Abrahamic Covenant, those are the promises that God gave to Abraham, especially regarding the Messiah, the seed promise that would come from Abraham. Furthermore, the Mosaic Covenant, it's a mediated trinity, or not trinity, treaty between God and Israel. In other words, it's a treaty that God has his obligations in his agreement and Israel has, his, has their obligations in this agreement. So much so that if Israel is to obey the covenant of the law, God will bless him. But if Israel fails to keep the covenant, then God would curse him. That's how that Mosaic covenant works. And yet with the Abrahamic covenant, although this is something that God makes with Abraham, it's unconditional. No matter what Abraham does, whether, be, whether he be faithful or faithless, God is going to keep his promises to Abraham because this is something that he has made according to his own glory, not based on what Abraham does, but based upon God's own will. This is something that he chose to do and it's going to be up to God for him to keep it alone. And that's what we see. That's what we see that God does in the scriptures. And so this idea then, when it comes to these two type of covenants, in a sense, there is more distance between God and Israel when he gave the law because of this idea of Moses being a mediator. But when it comes to God's promises to Abraham, There's a lot more closeness, right? Because God is speaking directly to Abraham and making these promises. And yet, what does Paul mean when he says an intermediary implies more than one? And this is where some difficulty comes into into play. I mentioned earlier, right, that one mediator is Moses. So we can think of Moses here, but Paul has in mind more than one, right? He has a plurality of mediators here. And yet, what are the other mediators that Paul has in mind? And some theologians in the past have proposed, well, Paul obviously has Christ in mind because he's the one mediator between God and man. Or others would say, no, it just refers to the two parties in the Mosaic covenant, God and Israel. And yet, neither of them really take into consideration the context. How about the angels? How about Moses, right? Because that's what Paul is saying here. So what is Paul getting at? Well, we obviously have two parties in this Mosaic covenant, which are clearly God and Israel. Moses was Israel's mediator before God. That's what we saw earlier. And yet when it comes to the angels, I think that the angels, although they're clearly here in this process, they're functioning as God's mediator to Israel. That's what I think Paul is ultimately getting at here. And to kind of give an example of that, there's only one other passage in the scriptures. When you think of that famous Bible story, David and Goliath, right? It's a a very famous Bible, Bible story. You have King David, right? He's facing off against Goliath the Philistine. And yet Goliath... Who does he represent? The Philistine army. And yet David, as he's going to fight Goliath, who's he representing? The nation of Israel. And where Goliath who represents Philistines are really the seed of the serpent, yet with King David, who represents Israel, they're ultimately representing God. And so kind of keeping that, 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 that structure in mind, that's kind of what Paul is trying to say, I think, here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 20. However, all that in mind, There's even greater difficulty how this all relates to this final verse in verse 20. But God is one. So keeping that all in mind that you got two parties in the Mosaic Covenant, God and Israel, Moses represents Israel, and the angels are are acting as mediators for God, how does that even relate to now God is one, right? Now do you kind of see like Paul, what's Paul really trying to get at here? It's not very clear. But when you look at that word but um, at the end of verse 20, What that is ultimately telling you, however, is that there's a contrast going on here. And that's a big hint. Paul is making a contrast with the first part of verse 20 and to how he finishes this verse. There are two mediators, right? For the two parties in the Mosaic Covenant. In contrast, however, Paul's reference to God is one. It indicates that he made his promises to Abraham without any mediation. Because again, remember, those are the two covenants that God is comparing here. The Mosaic Covenant with all the different mediators and the Abrahamic covenant, which God directly gives promises to Abraham. He doesn't need any mediation. There is no mediators there. And that I, in that phrase, God is one, Paul is alluding to the Shema there, right? He's alluding to the Shema to, Shema to make his point that God is one. There's, there's, there's a plurality in God, right, because he's a trinity, three in one. But when it comes to God, there's no mediators. There's only one God, and just to kind of quote Deuteronomy 6, 4 quickly, it's, it's a very famous passage. It just says, Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. But the whole point of this passage here, because why does Paul even bring this up, right? It's very confusing. It's, it's very tricky. But the reason why Paul brings this all up is that God's promises to Abraham, they are more important than God's law in a salvific sense. And, and, and I emphasize, in a salvific sense. Because where the law needed mediation, the promises to Abraham were made to God personally, or, or God made his promises to Abraham personally. And where the promises to him came first, the law was aftered afterwards. And again, the whole point of Galatians 3 is, is, is an argument for salvation, that you're not saved by works, you're not saved by keeping the law, you're saved by faith. And that faith came from the promises that God gave to Abraham. But that then begs a question. Why is that so significant? And this is the question that Paul begins to explore by raising another objection in the second feature of God's law, which is the promise and the law. The promise and the law. Paul began by focusing on the purpose of the law. Now we're going to look at Paul discussing the promise and the law. So look at Galatians 3.21 in your Bibles. Paul writes, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that can give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And so the second question then supplements the first one. After Paul explains that one purpose of God's law, the Galatians would then raise this next question in light of it. If the law shows sin and the promises to Abraham bring salvation, are they then both at odds? Is the law then contrary to God's promises? And look at how Paul immediately responds. Certainly not, may it never be, or in some other old order English translations like in the King James it says, God forbid, or as the American pastor John MacArthur likes to translate it, no, 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 and a million times no, right? All this is trying to get at, when Paul says certainly not, this is the strongest form of negation in the original language, and so although the Galatians would have asked this question, Paul responds, God's law is not contrary to his promises bottom line. And Paul then be grounds his response in the next part of the verse. Look at his reason for saying that, though, at the, at the last part of verse 21. That's what Paul writes here. He says, for if a law had been given that can give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And so if you look at that sentence very closely, it's constructed as a conditional statement, if then, right? Do you see those two parts? If, then if this is true, this first part, then the second part will happen. And how Paul is using this in the original language, he's assuming this statement to be false for the sake of his argument. In other words, Paul says that if the law could give life, eternal life, then righteousness could be achieved by the law. It would be possible to be saved by one's good works to be made right before God. And yet, obviously, right, Paul does not believe this to be true, just look at what he says next in Galatians 3.22 in your Bibles. Paul writes here, but but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so Paul recalls a significant point about the relationship of God's law and promises. When Paul says the scripture, right, he usually virtually always has one verse in mind. Which verse exactly? Well, look again at the concept of Galatians 3.22. Paul is saying that the law imprisoned everything under sin. And since the law reveals sin and every person is a sinner, it imprisons them under the curse of the law. And if you keep in mind the context of Galatians 3, he actually makes this point back in Galatians 3.10. Look there when he says this, loved ones. He says that for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 27.26 here. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so since no one can keep God's law, everyone is under its curse. And that curse is God's eternal judgment upon those who break his law, to those who break his commandments. And if you look at that that phrase, imprisoned in Galatians 3.22, really Paul has in mind a jailhouse here. This, this, This is an illustration he's employing here. What is that jailhouse? Well, the jailhouse is the law. And when you break God's law, you're especially when you, when you sin against the warden of that law, God, you're going to find yourself in jail, and you're going to find yourself unable to free yourself from that prison because you, you've sinned against a holy, eternal God. Therefore, for your cosmic treason, you will experience an eternal punishment forever. In prison, in jail, in the lakes of fire, in the lakes of hell, that's what the That's what the law ultimately teaches us about, that we're not just sinners, but this is what we ultimately deserve. And yet, even by me saying it, and I know most of us here would embrace that reality because that's what the word of God says, I can already hear people in the culture crying out, John, how dare you enforce your beliefs upon others? Not only is that narrow-minded and intolerant, but it really limits my own personal freedom. Because people would say, I must be free to make my own decisions in life. Because only then can I live my true authentic life being true to how I feel on the inside. That's how people talk in our culture. If you read social media, that's how people embrace this this lifestyle of true authenticity. And I just wanna say that there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong in wanting to live an authentic life. Or as people in my generation, don't be fake, right? Keep it real. And I think that's very important because when it comes to the church, unfortunately, the church in the last couple decades there has been a hypocritical spirit prevalent in many of American churches. And so this, this goal of wanting to be authentic, that is a good goal. That is a good aspiration. But the problem, though, with the culture is that they're looking for that authenticity in the completely wrong place. They're looking at the wrong places to find this because many look inside themselves to determine what is true, what is real. And yet when they do that, you actually remove the right for any moral outrage for anything. To kind of help with this, consider what the British writer G.K. Chesterton once said. This is, he wrote this 100 years ago, but he was a great thinker, and he saw this stuff on the horizon coming, coming to the West. He says this, that the new rebel is a skeptic and will not trust anything. Absolute truth, nothing like that. But he can never really be a revolutionary. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. In other words, the culture screams with pride today that you must be free to live your life to be your true authentic self. Rules from an institution like the church or authority outside of oneself limits such freedom. And yet what Chesterton observes is that such a way of thinking is truly limiting. To embrace your personal truth is at the expense of everything else. And so you actually limit yourself to what you choose to believe in alone. And yet, when you limit truth to your feelings, then that raises the big problem. How can you say what is ultimately right and what is ultimately wrong? To be offended that God is going to judge, what is judgment? What is evil? What is wrong? And as I kind of give an example of this, that kind of hits close to home, in the news, many of you probably have been hearing about this, but I've I just been hearing so much people, especially people in my generation, people in this culture, saying that Hamas' attack on Israel was right, and that Israel's attack, or, or, or for defending themselves, retaliating back, was wrong. And yet, when people make a comment like that, and think that truth is determined by themselves, they actually have no ground to make a moral claim like that, because at the end of the day, what is your definition of right and wrong? Yourself? Well, how about the other person next to you has another definition of right and wrong? At the end of the day, if you choose to believe in yourself to make your own standard of right and wrong apart from the law of God, you remove any right for moral outrage. And not only that, but when you choose to believe in what you want, you limit yourself to your own opinions. And really, at the end of the day, no one is free you are not free when you do something like that because everyone at the end of the day lives according to their assumptions of how they think reality works. Whatever someone ultimately desires, that is what will ultimately direct their deepest values in life. And yet in contrast to that, when you compare that through the biblical worldview, only the biblical worldview gives a consistent message that God is the standard of morality. That's what we've been hearing right now through the the truth of God's law. Since all all have sinned against him, Everyone is a sin to slave, spiritually. And as a result, everyone deserves nothing but God's condemnation in hell forever. That's not my personal opinion. That's what the God of all creation says in his objective word. Truly then, freedom in determining truth yourself is one of the most enslaving ideologies of the culture today. And yet, even by me saying that, there is a way to experience true freedom. There is a way to be free from your chains to sin, from your chains to death, which always leads to brokenness. And Paul gives a hint at the end of Galatians 3, 22, what what that way to freedom is. He says at the end of verse 22 that God's promise of salvation in Jesus is given to those who believe. And he then explains what he means by that as he reaches the climax of tonight's text in the third feature of God's law. And so this third feature really shows you how to experience true freedom in the Son, because the pedagogue, because the law is compared to a pedagogue. Or in other words, the third feature of the law tonight is the pedagogue as the law. So look at Galatians 3:23 and your Bibles. Paul writes that now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so before anyone could be saved by faith in Jesus, everyone, in a sense, was held captive under the law of God's judgment due to sin, whether it be the Jews who received the law or the Gentiles who in their consciences know that they have sinned against God, all were imprisoned until the coming faith in Jesus would be later revealed, later in God's plan of redemptive history. And this leads then to Paul to address a very important element of God's law before Christ could come and free people back to himself from that cruel slave master of sin, right? So look at that, this element that Paul's gonna highlight here in verse 24. Look at Galatians 3:24 in your Bibles. Paul writes that so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So now we come upon that word, guardian. The law served as a guardian until Christ came. But what does Paul mean by guardian here? And this is really the key to understanding the point of Paul's argument here in our text tonight. That word guardian It stems from the Greek word pedagogue. Pedagogue has kind of been thrown at you throughout this night. And in the ancient world, a pedagogue was a slave. And what that slave would do as a pedagogue is that they were entrusted with the care and discipline of, of a family's young sons. And yet, they were not merely teachers, because when we use the word pedagogy today, we think of like this, like this teaching structure or whatnot, but in the ancient world, they made a distinction between teachers, the, the, the didaskolos, and the pedagogues, people who were um, entrusted with the care and discipline of young sons. And so pedagogues then, they were guardians. They were enforcers of discipline to these young boys. And also, they would also administer the will of these boys as fathers, that whatever the father desired for these sons, whether it be, you know, manners, what to learn, how, how they wanted to grow up as young men in society, it was the responsibility of the pedagogue to kind of enforce that discipline upon them. And so the goal was then, is that from the time the son left to care of his nurse as a, as a, as a baby into a, into, a young, into a young boy, then came the pedagogue. And what the pedagogue was supposed to do was to impose a restraint, and it was a necessary restraint until that boy became mature enough to use his liberty responsibly as a young man, as a responsible young man in society. And to kind of help illustrate this, um, I was, this is something that I was talking to a brother here earlier this week. And he brought up a good, a good point that in The Lion King, there's a good illustration regarding this idea of the pedagogue. And if you've ever seen The Lion King, and I'm not referring to the live action one, that was, that was okay. I'm referring to the original cartoon. That was the best one, right? At least in my opinion, because I know, I know that's subjective. If you remember that scene um, when Simba and his friend, they want to go to the elephant graveyard, right? And yet they can only go if this bird named Zazu can go with them. And they're pretty upset. Like, man, why is Zazu coming along with us? And yet, Zazu was, was really, he works for the king. Because Simba, he was the son of the king of, of um, in that story, which they're all lions and stuff, stuff like that, right? Animals and stuff like that. The, the father, Mephasa, he was the king of that land. And so Zazu was always sent with Simba wherever he went to make sure he didn't get into trouble, to kind of function as his friend, like, hey, don't get into trouble, man, because one day you are going to be king, but you're not king yet, so don't get cocky, little boy. You know, I'm here to help you, to discipline to discipline you until one day that you will be ready to be the king of, of the land, right? And so, so so that's kind of how Zazu functions here in the story, and similarly... That's kind of what a pedagogue was supposed to do for these young sons in the ancient world. And so with all that in mind then, what is Paul's point in comparing God's law to a pedagogue? Well, the point is that the law was to prepare Israel for the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Why? Because the law demonstrates first humanity's sinfulness, and also God's promises to Abraham is that there is salvation only in the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. And so the law then, as it functions as a pedagogue, it was a tutor of Israel's sinfulness leading them to embrace their greatest spiritual need in Jesus. That is the purpose of the law here. And that's why Paul says at the end of Galatians 3.24 that we might be justified by faith. Not saved by our works of the law, but saved by faith. Saved by faith in the promises of God. That is what the law that Paul is arguing here was the purpose here. It was here as a tutor to show you how sinful you are so that you realize, like, wow, there's only one way to be saved, and that is Jesus. How needy am I of him as my Lord and Savior? Because you can only find true freedom, right, by faith in the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. And just to kind of help illustrate this, especially to those here who may be unbelievers or anyone listening online who may be an unbeliever. I just kind of want to give an example of, like, what does it look like that the law tutors you of how much of a sinner sinner you are and to really get you thinking how much you are needy of Jesus as the Messiah. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Some of you guys, you're going to know what I'm going to do right now. But for those who don't know, these are questions you need to answer seriously. I'm going to answer one question. And these are going to be questions I'm going to ask regarding God's law or moral law or the Ten Commandments. The first question I want to ask you is that, have any of you have ever told a lie before? And if we're honest, we have all told lies. And so what do you call someone who tells lies? a liar, right? That's the first question. And I've told lies too, by the way. Second, what do you call someone who steals? Thief, right? And I think I messed up answering that, right? Because I should have asked, have you ever stolen something before? And if we're honest, yes. And we would call that person a thief. Leads to my third question. Have you ever said God's name in vain before? Like, oh my, and you say, God. And if we're honest, when we get upset, we most likely said it. And in the Bible, believe it or not, says that you are a blasphemer against God. Which leads me to a fourth question I want to ask. Have you ever looked at another person with lust? And if we're all honest, we all have, unfortunately, right? Including myself. We've all fallen in these ways, and yet Jesus says in his sermon on the mount, when you look at a woman or a man with lust, you commit adultery with them in your heart. And so those were those four Laws of God's commandments which rank up to about like 613. And so based on your confession, then whether whether you realize or not, you are a thieving, lying, blaspheming, and adulterer at heart, and because of that, where do you think how you will stand on judgment day? When God comes to judge even once and for all, if that is you and you're standing in that state, where do you think you are gonna stand at the end of the day? Again, the law of God as the standard of right and wrong reveals to all of us that we are sinners. We are hopeless sinners trapped in our addictions to our sins, and apart from God, we are going to a one-way ticket to hell. And that's what we all deserve, and that's the consequence of breaking God's law. Because you've broken him, even if you just break one, because God is holy, he he demands 100%, the only consequence, the only reward you will be getting is eternal condemnation in hell. And that's the bad news, and that's what the law does, but in light of the law, there is good news. And this is the whole point of why the law was to prepare you to show you how much a punk you are spiritually and how much you need Christ spiritually, right? Because, because God, God the Father, he sent his son 2,000 years ago. He sent his son Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary, to add humanity to himself, to live a perfect life, to one day die on a Roman cross so that all who would repent of their sins, that, Lord, I am a lawbreaker. I have sinned against you. I have not worshipped you as the King of kings, but I have worshipped myself as the Lord of of my life. Therefore, I repent of my lawbreaking before you, and I profess my faith in King Jesus because he is who he says he was. He wasn't a liar. He wasn't a lunatic. He wasn't even a legend. But because he died on that cross, was buried and rose again victoriously, three days later from the grave, he is who he said he was, and he eyewitness accounts of the Gospels. The resurrected Lord. That's who Jesus is. And so if you place your faith in him, you are forgiven of your sins because all your guilty sins are placed in the Christ account. And he dies on a cross and he pays your sin debt in full. And in exchange, think of a bank account exchange here, all the perfect righteousness that he earned in this life, he gives it to your account so that when the Father looks at you, you are no longer a guilty lawbreaker, but you are declared right. Not because of what you have done, not because you are worthy of God's great love, but because of God's great love for you, he laid down his life for you. If you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, the Bible says you will be saved. And that's the gospel. And that is what it truly means to be truly free. Because consider what Jesus says in John eight thirty four to 36. He says this, that truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, that is the son of God, you will be free indeed. And so if there's anyone here who realizes that you have broken God's law. You are a guilty lawbreaker and you war- are worthy of eternal condemnation in hell. And yet, if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you will be saved. And only then will you experience true freedom. True, true freedom from your shackles of sin and true freedom to live for the one that you're created to live for, to enjoy to glorify God with your lives, to enjoy Him forever, and to live your lives with a renewed purpose, not for yourself but for him. But that's only possible through, through the Son to experience true freedom in Jesus. So repent of your sins and place your f- faith in Jesus if you have not done so today. And so that's really the point of the law, to show you how much of a sinner sin you are, to help you understand why you need Jesus and why you can only be free in Jesus. And it's with this in mind that Paul closes his argument here, here in, in Galatians 3.25. And so look at your Bibles here at the last verse of tonight. He says that, but now faith has come. We're no longer under a guardian then. And so, since faith has come in the promised Messiah Jesus, the law no longer serves as a guardian. It still condemns people of their sins, it still um, moderates sins so, so people don't get all crazy and stuff. And it's even, it's, it's even the way of how Christians are called to live their lives now under the new covenant. And yet, it no longer serves as a guardian because Christ has now come, and all you need then is just to preach the gospel preach the gospel to your neighbor, tell them how much of a sinner they are through the law of God, the standard of of, of what is right and wrong, and show them how much they need Jesus. They need his grace. They need his mercy because he is the only one that's able to pay for humanity's greatest spiritual debt eternally before God. And so so that's how Paul closes his argument here. And one thing I just want to quote before we close is that this is the highlight of Paul's argument here in Galatians 3. And again, he's been speaking to Galatians who have been deceived that they need to be Jews to be saved. And these Jews in Galatians, they thought that they need to to obey the works of the law to be saved. And yet what Paul says here is that Jews under the new covenant of Yeshua, of Jesus, they can live as Jews culturally. There's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, because these are gifts that God has given to the Jews, they are I think every right that because you're a Christian who is a Jew, they should continue living as a Jew. But the differences under the new covenant of Yeshua is that such a lifestyle no longer is essential for salvation for Jews. And is not necessary for Gentiles to be grafted into into the tree to be spiritual sons of Abraham. Because whether you're a Jew or or a Greek, whether you choose to live like a Jew or live like a Greek, bottom line, for all nations, a person, as as Paul says in Galatians 2.16, you're justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And that is the heart of what Paul is getting at here in Galatians 3. And so by way of applications in loved ones, there's a couple questions I need to ask you. And this is for myself as well. You just learn that, or maybe a reminder that the law serves to show you how much of a sinner you are and really to help you understand that, how much you need to depend upon God, not only for salvation, but daily. My question to you, loved ones, is that do you really depend upon Jesus each and every single day? I know theologically we, we must, but do we practically do so each and every single day? Are we equipped to give into anxiety? Are we quick to to be as people we have no hope and to give into depression when we look at the world around us that seems to be falling apart? Or do we stand and say, you know what? Although the world is crazy or my life may be in shambles right now, but the one thing that matters in this life is that I have King Jesus and I depend upon him alone. It is no longer I who live, right? Because all that you ever need at the end of the day is Jesus. And so loved ones, are you a slave to your sins or lack of trust in Jesus? Or do you depend upon God each and every single day by faith. Because as, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, really a theme verse to this letter, he says this, that I have been crucified with Christ. All my sins, they're nailed to the cross of Christ. It is no longer my, my dead man that lives. Rather, it's no longer I who live. Rather, it's Christ who lives in me. If people were to see you, loved ones, would Christ see, Christ see? Would, would Christ be evident in your lives, in your workplaces, in your families? To your neighbors. And yet, Paul says the life he now lives in the flesh, in this world, he lives by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because he loved him and gave himself for him. So, loved ones, you are justified. You are set free from your bondage of sin and death because Christ loved you as his children and gave himself for you on the cross. Therefore, you are to depend upon Christ each and every single day. As you go about your work weeks, as you, as you um, go through school, as you, as you go about your lives, you are called to depend upon God each and every single day. And I think there's one practical way of doing that is through prayer. Something that the pastors have been emphasizing. And because prayer is one of the things that when we don't pray, we basically live as if we don't need God today. But when we do pray, we realize our neediness of our Father in heaven and how much we are needy of his grace of him each and every single day the grace that empowered you to be saved, you need just as much grace to continue living the Christian life, to not only grow in Christ-like holiness, but to go and make disciples to share the good news so that you can tell your neighbor how they can be set free from sin so that they can live in King Jesus. So you've all been set free to serve Jesus as Lord and Savior by lovingly keeping his commandments. This is the Bible's vision to be truly free. Therefore, you can only find freedom in Jesus by faith. The purpose of God's law is to reveal your cosmic treason against him. And as a result, the law justly promises you eternal death. And yet the law is a pedagogue, tutoring you about your great need for Jesus the Messiah as Lord and Savior. So, if you are not following him today, you will never be free from your bondage to sin spiritually. Because you can only be set free by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus by faith alone. Because only then will you be free to live the life you were created to live to glorify God while you enjoy him as the source of all beauty, of all goodness and love forever. And for those who have been set free by sin, by faith in Christ alone, live for him, right? Live for him in submissive dependence daily. Since everything is from him and through him and to him, glorify him with your lives. Glorify him with the giftings that God has given you. With the talents and skills that he has given you in the context of your lives of where he's placed you, whether it be your families, your neighborhoods, your jobs. Because only when you do that will your neighbors begin to witness your good works and glorify God in heaven and not only, and not only say that, but realize, like, wow, look at their love. Look at how they love their lives. The Father has sent the Son, leading them to believe that maybe there is true freedom in the Son of God. That is the word of the Lord Church this evening. So we're about to pray. Um, but Brother Fernando had to leave, not for, not for anything bad, um, but just had to get going after he finished this, the final song. And so we're going to pray and, and jump right into communion immediately. But as we're praying, if you need to take communion, just raise your hand. And again, this is a family meal, right? This is one of the ordinances that, that Christ has given to the church, his people, to, to know us who we are as Christ's disciples. And so if you have professed faith in Jesus by faith alone and have identified with him in baptism, I encourage you as we, as we enter this final prayer... Um, or second to last prayer, I should say, raise your hand so Brother Luke can um, pass the elements to you right now. But with all that in mind, let's go before the Lord in prayer and prepare our hearts as we take the Lord